0: From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM, KYAQ Central Coast. 106.7 FM, Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 93 FM, WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM, KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM, Columbus. In Hillinville, New York. On 102.9 FM WLPP. In Bellingham, Washington, on KZAX 94.9 FM. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio. Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But I'm with you once again today, Angie Coyro. In fact, I'm here through Monday as Brad and Desi take some time off. Busy week. Barack Obama responded today to Russia's alleged election hacking with sanctions against Russian agencies and specific officials. John Kerry engaged in some very plain speaking about Israel yesterday, which, of course, taken in combination with the U.N. resolution just passed, has supporters of Israel calling everything in sight and everyone in sight anti-Semitic. In a few minutes, I'll talk to R.J. Esko about both of these things. And, in fact, he and I will go into why I just stuck the word alleged before election hacking. We're also going to touch on why apparent plain speaking, which so many of us would welcome in politics, is rarely that, even if it looks like it. I was really pleased to hear Kerry say flat out that Even as a friendly voice to Israel, the U.S. finds it necessary to encourage a two-state solution. It's just nice to hear someone say it flat out, what appears to most of us, oh, did I say most, what appears to many of us to be common sense. But a lot of people aren't taking it that way. Uh, we had, oh, the usual folks saying this is divisive, et cetera. We'll get into that part of it with RJ. But I think one of the more nuanced takes, or at least the one that best expressed some of the hesitance and reticence people feel around this, was voiced by Maddie Iglesias in Vox. That article, Carrie's bombshell Israel speech, is one of the most puzzling things I have seen in politics. Why divide Democrats and unite Republicans just when Trump is about to take over? You know, I understand why Iglesias and others who express this think it's important to look two, three steps ahead to see what we're doing. That is the nature of politics. You don't do what you feel like and not worry what the fallout will be. But the flip side of that is, in the last 20, 30 years, almost everyone, less, much less the Republicans, but to a great, great extent the Democrats, everything— that they could say or do in a given situation is predicated on what if. In many cases is crippled by what if. What if this upsets Trump? What if the Republicans point fingers at us and say we're lying and call it fake news? What if this upsets the voters? You could take a what if and end up never doing anything. Does that apply in this case to Kerry? I leave that to you. But it's yet another case where he could have said, gosh, we don't want to make Israel upset. We're only here for a few more weeks. We don't want to make it too untidy for Trump coming in. Let's just stay with the usual line. He didn't do that. I mean, credit for that. Credit, too, to Iglesias. He says why, at a time when the country urgently needs effective political opposition to an alarming new regime that is entering office with vast power but little democratic legitimacy... The Obama administration choose to lash out ineffectually in a way that unites his successors' coalition while dividing his own party. Why pick a fight he's sure to lose? I guess it depends on what you think the game is. There's an opportunity here, color me naive, but there is an opportunity here for Trump, or at least whatever person is speaking through Trump at any given time, to take a cue here to say we are less bound to the standard. We are less bound to saying Israel is our friend. Israel d- is doing everything right. We are less bound to mouth the things that so many people know is no longer, and in some cases may never have been the case. Do I think Trump will take advantage of that? Eh. But at least there's that stick in the sand. It put down a little sign that says, look, here is a chance to establish, plain speaking, And you, incoming party and president, have the opportunity to continue in like way. Do go to Vox.com, though, and read Iglesias. I mean, obviously, much more than I can cover here. He does have some very valid points. As always, truth is somewhere in the gray area. And again, more to come on that with RJ Eskel in a few minutes. Susie Madrick is going to join me, too. What she and I are going to talk about is so much lower profile. In fact, she's one of the few people writing about this. But it's important that this one not fall by the wayside because the Republicans are going after the safety net again, quietly below the horizon. This time they're tackling Medicaid. So listen up later for that. Let's check out some other news that's in the news today. And this one's kind of appalling. An imprint of Simon Schuster has just signed neo-Nazi Milo Yiannopoulos to a new book contract, reportedly a $25,000 advance. Now, granted, it's an imprint of Simon & Schuster, but ultimately it's Simon & Schuster. They're the ones who are going to pocket the money from this, or they wouldn't have that imprint. And I should disclose a certain conflict of interest here. On my own show, I deal with Simon & Schuster, some lovely, wonderful people there who help me to book authors for my show. I just want to get that out there. In this case, I almost don't have to because I strongly disapprove of what they're doing. Strongly disapprove. I mean, I got over years ago the idea that corporations have a conscience, or even should have a conscience. Should is irrelevant. Of course they don't have one. Corporations, by definition, are omnivorous. The whole reason corporations exist is to gobble up anything and or spit out anything that makes monies, makes money for the corporation. That's why they're around. When we get upset that corporations do X, Y, or Z, it's good. They need to be monitored. It's good that we react. But bear in mind, it's not the same as going to a person saying, do you understand why this is bad? Do you understand why this is immoral? No, they're amoral. I understand that. Simon & Schuster is a publicly traded division of CBS. So in that sense, it is perfectly rational to grab onto one of the loudest, most controversial jerks they could possibly find to see if they can sell a flotilla of books. Now, what may happen with said imprint is, you see the right often buying up a ton of books to drive it up to number one, and those books go languish somewhere, we may see that. What we might also see And again, this is bearing in mind the nature of corporations. What we might also see is a corporation being made to understand that its public image, ergo its cash sources, may be compromised by this. People are protesting. And you know that on the right, this is going to be characterized as stomping on free speech. You just want to quash free speech. No. I mean, for the most part, I'm not even going to go there. You and I both know what quashing free speech is. And this is not that. What it is, is applying market forces saying, I am potentially Simon & Schuster's customer. And as a customer, I am letting you know, I will not be happy if you do this. And that will affect my decisions down the line to buy your product. That's as free market as you get. Protest is a good thing in this case. Fire away. You can ping Simon & Schuster. They're on Twitter. They're on all the usual alleyways of social media. You can focus on that specific imprint. You can tweet CBS Corporate. Whatever. It may not work, but stranger things have happened. Books have been pulled. Speakers have been canceled. Events have been canceled by schools, by companies, by, dare I say, corporations. And that, my friend, is the free market at work. It might be worthwhile To pull a page from Spocko's, I don't know if you you remember Spocko, well, not remember, he's very much still out there. If you know Spocko's playbook, it's to quietly and politely let the corporations know these are the direct quotes, these are the specific documented actions that the person you're choosing to affiliate with has done, has put on the public record. Now, with Milo, that's not that difficult. He has racist, sexist, pure Nazi rhetoric out there, and it's not all that hard to find. So if anyone wants to protest Simon & Schuster, that might be the most effective way to go about that. Just show them politely who their new author is and let them take it from there. More bad news, is it possible? More bad news. On the front of women trying to be treated even decently at universities. I'm putting, I'm putting the microscope this time on Stanford because that's the latest article to hit the news. But we've seen it time and time again. When someone on a sports team in a college or university is accused of sexual assault, which happens way too often, we get into that same old snarl. Well, she was drinking. Well, we have to make sure his rights are defended. True, but stay with me here. What happens is, in a disproportionate number of cases, no action is taken. You can say there are false accusations. You can say that the man's right has to be taken into consideration as much as the woman's. But the statistics do not bear out that everyone whose charges are dismissed in the university system were legitimately dismissed. Why does this come up now? Because there's an article about Stanford in the New York Times Describing a case that was adjudicated at the university with a panel of five people selected by the university to decide whether a sexual assault had occurred on campus. This went to the panel twice. The case involved a woman who had met a player on the football team at a frat party. How familiar does this sound? They went back to her room. She said he raped her. He said they had consensual sex. Both times this panel met, and this panel consists of administrators, faculty members, and students, they both times concluded that he committed sexual assault. Done deal. That he had done this. And the Times notes that at many schools, this majority would have been enough to find him responsible. Stanford required at least a four-to-one decision. Now, Stanford is having a lot of public dissonance over what happens when a boy slash man is accused of sexual assault. We all know the Brock Turner case. So, check this out. This year, amid growing dissent over how it handles these kinds of cases, Stanford has changed its procedure. It now requires a unanimous vote from a three member board, making it an outlier among prestigious universities. In other words, Under the old system, they required a four-to-one decision. Three people in that room of five decided twice that this man had committed sexual assault. Both times they fell one short. Stanford changed the system. Now it's got to be unanimous. Only one other school, Duke, in U.S. News & World Report's list of the country's top colleges has such a stringent requirement. And this is being argued by the usual parties. I'm pleased to see Women's Rights organizations step up. I'm pleased to see people who have connections to the legal community step up. Michelle Dauber is in there. Uh, She's a, a teacher, a legal teacher at Stanford. And she's speaking up again, saying despite her lack of knowledge of this particular case, she already knows that the system doesn't work. And she knows that because she was right on top of the Brock Turner case. All the woman wanted, when she went to Stanford, when she went to Stanford and said, yes, I will take your panel of adjudication instead of the judge, an actual judge, an actual police case, she told the New York Times, all I really wanted was a no-contact order. I wanted little things to make being on campus more bearable. I knew he was never going to get suspended or expelled. She already knew that going in. She wanted, to her credit to give the system a chance. She was a sophomore in college. Of course she doesn't have the deep background in this that a lot of people who work against these systems already have. But she decided to give that panel a shot. The takeaway from this, and the takeaway from so many similar issues on so many other campuses, as painful as it is, as difficult as it is for a young woman to go through a police report, An exam, sexual exam, the works. Do it. Don't go to the college. Don't go to the university. Go to the police. The legal system is flawed. At least there is a chance you might be taken seriously. We're seeing again and again with the universities. There's just this natural inclination they can't seem to overcome. To tip this over, to the guys tip this over in favor of the accused. Now, unless you convince an entire panel at Stanford that you've been sexually assaulted, it's on you. Needless to say, she's not at Stanford anymore. He's still playing football. She's not at Stanford. She doesn't know whether she's going to go back or not. Let's look at one more thing. We're going to talk later on with R.J. as I promised. We're going to be talking about Russia. Barack administration, Barack Obama administration, about the incoming Trump administration. I want to give a word on that to George Takei, who was published in The Daily Beast. Yes, George Takei from Star Trek, who, in case you've missed it, has been setting himself up more and more effectively as a political commentator. And he is one of the straight speakers that I've come to admire very much. His article, I Lost Family in Hiroshima, Mr. Trump, nuclear weapons are no game. He cites Trump's tweet, of course a tweet because that's what Trump does, that the U.S. must greatly strengthen and enhance its nuclear capability until the world comes to its senses regarding nukes. The world, he said, blinked in astonishment, wondering what again Trump might mean and why this appeared on Twitter, of all places. And then Takai, as so many people did, said that Trump's language seemed to imply a new arms race. A lot of people took it that way. Granted, 140 characters doesn't tell you a whole lot, but it's as much as Trump chooses to say about most things, so it's all we got to work with. Takai says, I can't help but feel Mr. Trump treats brinkmanship as some game. It's hard to believe he needs reminding that nuclear weapons are not toys nor are they chips to be wagered in some kind of high-stakes poker match. I am among a dwindling number still around, he says, who remember the first time atomic weapons were used, at that time to end a terrible world war. I had family in Hiroshima when the Enola Gay dropped its payload, obliterating an entire city in an instant. My aunt was among over 100,000 dead, Along with my baby cousin, found cradled in her arms in one of the canals that fan out through the city. Their bodies burned nearly beyond recognition as she attempted to shield her child from the blast and the fire. So it is, he says, with ever increasing alarm, we must acknowledge that a man who apparently lacks the self control to keep his fingers from tweeting now literally has those same fingers on the nuclear button. Beyond the question of temperament, he goes on to say, I must ask, does Donald Trump understand the true horror of what he can unleash in an instant? Again, too long and too good of an article for me to demean it by just summarizing. So check this out. This is at The Daily Beast. George Takai, I lost family in Hiroshima. Nuclear weapons are no game. One last item worth going into, and that is, you know, I was talking yesterday about fake news. Fake news is a very big story right now. Facebook, of course, went to Snopes to say, we're going to be using Snopes now to check out whether news is fake. And if it is controversial or if it has been you know, decried as fake news, we're going to put a notation to that effect, blah, blah, blah. Wielding claims of fake news, an article says in the Times, conservatives take aim at mainstream media simultaneously. At Business Insider, Oliver Darcy cites, the left's emerging fake news problem. Catch that? Conservatives take aim at mainstream media, the left's emerging fake news problem. Let's be fair. Oliver Darcy in Business Insider did cite a legit case of the left, primarily the left, taking hold of a story and making much of it before it was clear it wasn't even true. It was the story of the Christmas Carol. Some parents believed that a Pennsylvania elementary school's production of A Christmas Carol had been shuttered over the Jewish parents' alleged complaints over its line, God bless us, everyone. The idea of the performance was canceled over that famous line, which the school denied, caused outrage. And as the story went, left the Jewish family so worried for their safety, they decided to skip town. Now he follows the trajectory of that story. And he talks about the different outlets that picked it up and ran with it. Left-wing, anti-conservative outlets who went who chose to distribute it to distribute it without fact-checking. And it does have the usual, well, we have to balance, we want to be first on the story, we want to get it out there, that matters. Implication being there's no time to fact-check. They call it Chasing the Viral Dragon, quoting a professor of journalism at the University of Nebraska. This is the guy who developed PolitiFact, by the way. And he notes, if you wait for facts to ruin a good story, you won't be in on the page view bonanza. Now, here's where it gets a little murky. They go to the Federalist to get a quote that it's obvious the media isn't interested in the truth. Journalists often aim to indoctrinate rather than educate. I'm shocked. Shocked! A quote from The Federalist would show up in an article demeaning the left for fake news. But the rest of it stands legit. The rest of it is worth review. I can go into in-depth about the New York Times review about how conservatives are specialists in fake news, and how they are taking aim at the mainstream media by decrying everything as fake. I think the better balanced article and the one worth your time is an actual dissection of what happened with a specific story, why it was defended by the media who ran it, and how the charges against it, charges about it, were kind of dismissed after the fact. That's worthwhile. We're, We're moving into such... Well, our feet are already wet. We're already up to our necks. But we're in such an era of everything being unbelievable. We have to keep our own house clean. I went to this yesterday. I'll say it again today. When it comes down to fake news, we will always be accused by the right. But that's all the more reason that we need to be careful. So we're second with the news and not first. What if we get it right consistently? Do you think nobody's going to notice that? Amanda Turkle of the Huffington Post, who authored the website story on the Jewish couple fleeing town, dismissed the notion that politics were to be blamed for the circulation of misinformation. She said it was wrong to conflate fake news articles that are wholly fabricated with stories that end up being incorrect because the reporter was operating on limited information. True? Reasonable response? I should leave that one up to you. It's time to move on to more of the Bradcast. We're going to take a little wee break here and coming up on the other side. We're going to tackle the Russians and Israel, etc., with the very astute RJS gal. I'm Angie Koro. Stick around for that on the Bradcast. <laughs>
1: Please stop by bradblog.com/donate to support the work that Desi Doyan and I do every day. This country ain't gonna save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com/donate, and thank you. <laughs>
0: Podcast. I'm Angie Cuero in for Brad and Desi today. I had this wonderful introduction to talk to you about the how the past was, how kids used to hide under their desk at the idea of a bomb coming in. The sirens would go off at noon. Every kid knew what a bomb shelter sign looked like, and all of that was to get us into talking about the Russian-American relationship. And lo and behold, just before I started talking to RJ Eskow, a bulletin came in from the New York Times saying that Barack Obama is now imposing sanctions on Russia, all of this tracing back to the apparent interference with the election. And this first bulletin coming over from the New York Times said that this is somehow going to box in Donald Trump in his new position, as I'm still choking on it, President of the United States. But the aforementioned R.J. Eskow is with me now to talk this over, and he is eminently qualified. He's a former uh, consultant, public policy advisor. He's spent time working as a senior executive in uh, more than 20 foreign countries in the U.S., and nowadays he is host of The Zero Hour. Boy, Richard, let's back up first and talk about how important all the news about the Russian-American connection has been up to now. We hear, for example, we think we know how much Russia's interfered with the election. What's less discussed is how common that is in the first place. So why don't you orient us on what the American-Russian relationship has been up until this moment, as opposed to how we might be perceiving it from the press?
1: Well, I think – you know, when it comes to the obviously, there's been tension between the U.S. and Russia uh, for a long time post uh, Cold War. Uh, you know, when when the Soviet Union fell, uh, there were a lot of conservatives who were very friendly with Yeltsin and very excited. You know, the then uh, uh, Bush one government was very excited. I was working for as a con- contractor for the Bush one State Department at the time. The uh, there was a lot of excitement around uh, obviously the fall of the Soviet Union, as as is justified, but of support for Nelson, who turned out to have clay feet, to say the least. But you know, there's there's been a tense relationship for a long time. Putin's an autocrat. He's a dictator. He's 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 all of the terrible things we hear. But he's also not. I, you know, the Russia of today is not a superpower on the level of the United States or the Soviet Union of thirty years ago. And and I say that to put all the to the talk we're hearing now in context because it's important to. You, you you mentioned the old days of you know duck and cover as we used to call it, when school kids were taught, uh, were put through exercises that were supposedly going to protect us from the hydrogen bomb and would have done no such thing. Uh, but but uh, you know I think it's important to remember when we talk about Russia and Russia hacking the election that uh, there's a poll out uh, this week showing that half of Hillary Clinton voters believe that Russia hacked the voting machines, which oh. no one has asserted. No one has asserted that, but there's, there's a, and a lot of people. Are taking at face value the statement from the intelligence agents, unnamed intelligence officials, and then uh, James Clapper, uh, director of intelligence, that Russia was behind the leak of emails, uh, you know, John Podesta's and the DNC's. Uh, but we don't even know that for a fact. And when I say that, I get accused of being a, been called a Russia denier or un- by Democrats, un American, a traitor, you know. I'm not saying it's not possible. It certainly is possible. They certainly had motives, but we haven't been shown the evidence yet. Now the new announcement from Obama—he says he's going to show more evidence, but not all of it. Will remain, you know. I, well, my history with experience with intelligence agencies and our nation's history is that you can't take them at their word. You have a right to ask for more information. James Clapper perjured himself uh, before Congress uh, openly when he said we weren't collecting bulk data on on americans Uh, and uh, the others from unnamed officials i think uh, i'll I'll close my comp this part of it with this jason leopold the journalist has got a freedom of information act request for all the evidence the fbi has on russian espionage involved in the election i don't understand why the clinton campaign Payne isn't supporting that. I don't understand why Obama isn't releasing more information. If this is going on, the American people deserve to know, know more than they know right
0: now. Yeah, you know, actually, your comments on that, I think it highlights the fact that we tend to think that propaganda comes from, quote unquote, the other side. You know, if, if Trump is putting it out, if Russia is putting it out, it's propaganda. And I think there's a certain naivete about that, because every politician who's in power right now, whether you like them or not, has a vested interest in how the propaganda works. And I, I think there's you know, we who like Obama, I have mixed feelings about him, but those people who are really fond of Obama want to take him at his word as soon as he opens his mouth.
1: Right. I think that's part of it. And I think a lot of people who are very invested in the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, also uh, would rather blame, and this gets people angry, but I'm going to say, would rather blame Russia than look at what Hillary and the Democratic Party could have done differently and better. Now, even if it's true which it may be, that, uh, that the Russians released these emails. Uh, think about it, Angie, nobody was saying until these Russia stories started coming out that the DNC uh, hack or the John Podesta hack Changed the course of the election. Everybody was saying yeah, Comey did it, or you know. But all of a sudden, the one element that Russia is being accused of is the only reason she lost. The well, fact know, is, I'm there. Not, ma- I'm
0: not hearing that though, RJ. I'm hearing. I fact, am. I'm hearing an endless rehashing of what went wrong in the election. You know, whether the Democrats were proactive enough, whether Clinton was active enough in areas that she was taking for granted that she was going to win, and not going into other areas because she conceded she wasn't going to win those. I'm hearing. More rehashing of this election, and that's from all supporters, from Clinton supporters, from Bernie supporters, from Jill Stein supporters. I'm hearing more about that than how we're supposed to go forward now, which I think is, you know, your your house is burning down and you're already looking for the accelerant. Deal with the fire first.
1: Well, but I think you can't do one without the other. I I, I think that... I think that all this what people call rehatching, is extremely healthy and important because I think that I mean, obviously, there can be unconstructive criticism as well. But I think the fact that she didn't beat this most unpopular candidate ever by 10 or 15 million votes. Mm And the fact that the Democratic Party has lost two-thirds of the governorships, two-thirds of the state legislatures, both houses of Congress, a reassessment is very much in order. So I don't know how you deal with the present emergency unless you deal with the failures that got us in the present emergency because that's the ticket out of it.
0: Let me go back to the idea of of where Russia stands. You say they're no longer a superpower, but we'd be putting a lunatic in office in the United States. So for those of us who see a renewed fear about Russia, superpower or not, how realistic are those fears?
1: Well, I think they were legitimate. I mean, I think that Russia does not have our interests at heart. I think Putin is a very shrewd oligarch and dictator. And I would not, you know, I would not underestimate him. I think he's an extremely shrewd player. I think there's every reason to be concerned. I think, you know, having a secretary of state who's, claim to fame as CEO of ExxonMobil was uh, was doing deals with Russia. I mean, it's very scary. It's very disturbing. But let's see it for what it is. It's an alignment of oligarchical wealth interests in Russia with oligarchical wealth interests in the United States. Let's be clear what we're up against and and the fact that there are really a queasy, scary alliances among American and Russian interests here. Uh, Yeah, we have every reason to be concerned, but I also think we need to be uh, realistic about the fact that Russia is a player on the world stage. I mean, unless we want, we've done, we've gone very close to a shooting war with them a couple times over Ukraine. How much, do, you know, to what extent do we want to negotiate? To what extent do we want to accelerate tensions? I think that's, you know, the Russia experts I know are saying, uh, you know, we're going to have to deal with them. And I think whether it's the Middle East or elsewhere, I think we are going to have to deal with them. So, uh, to what extent do, do we do that? I think that's a conversation we ought
0: to be having right now. You bring up the Middle East, and of course, we just saw John Kerry make a statement about Israel that's probably the plainest speaking we've heard about Israel from a Democratic person in ages. For whatever reason, that's divided a lot of people on both sides of the aisle. Some people are saying too little, too late. Some people are saying, wow, you have just caused yet another division between the Dems and the Republicans, or you've now empowered the Republicans and shattered the Democratic Party. All of that aside, which you're welcome to address, but primarily all of that aside, how much does that tell us about in these waning days of the Obama administration, how plain spoken they are now willing to be and how plain spoken they might be about Russia before they walk off the stage?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, that's two questions. I guess you know I I, I always appreciate the plain speaking. I mean, it's at this point it's it it serves no practical purpose, but it it sets a rhetorical tone for the future, and that that is welcome on its own. You know, on its own behalf, whether it's on this or on other issues where where the president and and his people have been more direct uh, on domestic policy too than they have been. I mean, I wish they'd been that those people four or eight years ago, but okay hey, at at least they're changing uh, the narrative a little bit on Russia. Look, I'm sorry. I guess, you know, I worked behind the Iron Curtain when I was doing my State Department work. I worked during the transition. I just do not believe when it comes to Uh, This kind of global political confrontation that we are in a place of plain speaking on either side of the divide right now. That's one of the reasons why I'm such a skeptic, because I just think that (laughs) there's a lot of maneuvering behind the scenes that we only glimpse if that you know, through a glass darkly. We don't really know what's going on. So from what I've seen, for example, or been able to read of these new sanctions and these new, uh, which just came out, as you said, before, before we started talking, um, you know, there's positioning going on. But uh, again, I, I need to see more evidence than than we've seen up to now. So so I don't know if we're going to plain speaking or not.
0: One of the things the New York Times noted in their headline was that this, this would box Donald Trump in. How much power is actually in Obama's hand or congressional hands that would have a lasting effect on what Trump can do?
1: Well, I think that's correct. I mean, that makes sense to me, Angie, because I think that, look, if Obama – we're already imposing sanctions on Russia over Ukraine. But if Obama steps up the sanctions and expels some intelligence agents and so on, uh, then when Trump comes in 22, 23 days from now, whatever it is – uh, if he lifts those sanctions, he's going to get a lot of heat from his own party. It's going to be politically difficult for him to do. So I think, uh, you know, this is one of a number of areas where, where Obama can box him in in the next two, three weeks. And I hope he picks more of them, frankly.
0: Can you pull out your crystal ball for just a moment? We're going to pretend that Donald Trump has done what a lot of people anticipate he will do, is that he'll walk into the White House, he'll say, bingo, I won, and then he's going to go away somehow. And we're left with a President Mike Pence. How competent is Pence on the international stage?
1: Well, I think it's uh, you know, I don't think he has any uh, meaningful international experience at this point. But the thing that frightens me about Mike Pence is that unlike Donald Trump, he is both a highly doctrinaire right far right winger and a competent executive which i don't know that trump is there's no evidence of that so pence frightens me in certain ways more than trump first of all trump's cartoonishness makes it easy for people to treat him skeptically Pence might seem more presidential, uh, while at the same time being, if anything, more, even more doggedly evil. And he's got this un- unquestioning support of his party. I, I would be afraid that if, if Trump goes away for any reason, Pence could be even more harmful.
0: Again, on the crystal ball side of things, how likely do you think it is that Trump will actually s- sit through an entire four-year term?
1: Well, you know, uh, there, it's unlikely, uh, and it's a crystal eight ball, by the way. But it's <laughs> unlikely, it's unlikely that he'll sit through it. But he may remain president, if you catch my drift. He may just hang out in Trump Tower and fly around the world and go to Mar-a-Lago in Florida and let Mike Pence do all the heavy lifting while he play acts of being president and de- designs presidential uniforms and and does things like that and sends tweets for the next four years or eight years. I can see that happening.
0: Oh my God! Now I have to hang up on you. <laughs> All
1: right, I don't blame you. I'd hang up on me too if I could.
0: RJ Eskow, you can ho- you can check him out as the host of the Zero Hour. Oh, RJ, where can people find that online?
1: They can uh, find us at thisisthezerohour dot com, or they can support the show at patreon slash the zero hour.
0: You are the best. Thank you for carving out so much time.
1: You are the best, too. My pleasure.
0: That's R.J. Eskow. You'll find him on The Zero Hour. So with thanks to R.J., uh, there is more coming in on the sanctions that Barack Obama announced. So we're going to look a little more closely at those. The New York Times names the four officials that R.J. referred to, the four top officers of the GRU Russian military unit that the White House believes ordered the hacking attack. But the article goes on to note, this is the Times, one of the first stories out on this, said that many of these sanctions may not have any teeth at all. It uses the phrase largely symbolic. It says the GRU officials rarely travel to the U.S. or keep their assets here. It says the U.S. was also expected to release intelligence, evidence that is, linking the cyber attacks to computer systems used by Russian intelligence taken together the actions would amount to the strongest American response ever taken to a state-sponsored cyber attack aimed at the U.S. But does that really mean anything concrete in terms of effectiveness? Because the same article notes the question now is whether the response he has assembled will be more than just symbolic, deterring not only Russia but others who might attempt to influence future elections. We don't know. This is this is fairly fairly new territory for all involved. Uh, Okay, so it's early days. But, you know, as RG just noted, we have to take all of this with the knowledge that there are wheels within wheels. We heard today what the Obama administration wanted us to hear. I'll tell you one thing that does look pretty straightforward, pretty undeniable. The incoming toddler-in-chief doesn't want us paying attention to any of this let alone analyzing it, because he was asked yesterday about Obama's pending action, and he urged us all to just move on. Just move on with our lives.
2: These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. Move along. Move along.
0: Nothing happening over there in the corner. Coming up on the broadcast, Susie Madrick pokes at the last GOP effort to shred the safety net, this time targeting Medicare with the usual deceptive cheerleading about how wonderful their new suggestion is. I'm Angie Coiro. This is the broadcast. <laughs> And thanks.
2: When I get older, losing my hair, many years
0: from now, will you still be sending me a valentine? This is the Bradcast. I'm Angie Claro, in for Brad and Dizzy. You may have noticed something during my conversation with R.J. Eskel earlier, and you'll notice it again in my coming interview with Susie Madrak. I am not a technical whiz. I'm one of those people that learns exactly how much I need to know to get something produced and get it on the air. And I know a lot less than other people. So, yeah, there's something wrong with my mic when I'm talking to somebody on the phone. I think, I hope, you thought that the conversation with R.J. was worth listening to to through the audio problems. And I think you will think that of this coming interview. Susie Madrak, if her name sounds familiar, there's very good reason for that. Susie is one of the earliest progressive bloggers, the first wave, if you will. And she spent time working too for Crooks and Liars. Her work has also appeared on Smirking Chimp and other left-wing sites. And one of Susie's strengths is focusing on the signal when everybody else is focusing on the noise. So I spoke with her about yet another of her stories that nobody else seems to be talking about. And when I recorded this, yes, I was still having problems with my microphone, but I think you will find it is worth your time. Here's our conversation. So another topic in which one's political lens can distort reality. Let's talk about Medicaid for a minute. Medicaid is a fascinating animal. Uh, you might recall that during the years-long battle for health care reform, it ultimately gave us Obamacare. You could ask a conservative what they thought of government-subsidized health care, and chances were you would get an immediate negative response. But you could ask that same person about extending Medicaid to everyone, and by golly, some of those same people would say, okay, I can get behind that. As For some reason, it's a piece of the safety net that more people understand than other parts of the safety net, which have a bad name with Republicans and conservatives and longtime journalist and first wave progressive blogger Susie Madrick has a post up on Huffington right now. And she notes that Republicans want to replace Medicare with, pardon me, Republicans want to replace Medicaid with block grants. Grants, she says, that will be announced as slightly more than current costs, and it will allow innovation and efficiencies. Isn't that great? Aren't Republicans swell? And, of course, she doesn't mean a word of that, so (laughs) I am calling upon her to account for herself. Susie, it's great to talk to you again.
2: Hi, Angie. Nice to talk to you. So, Um, yeah, dive in. Yeah, this this whole thing with with Medicaid, I mean, they, they want to go after all three. They want to go after Social Security. Medicare and Medicaid. They know how hard it's going to be to go after Social Security and Medicare, so they're thinking that Medicaid will probably be an easier target because, after all, it's only poor people. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it's really not only poor people. This is this is the thing that, like, if you have an elderly parent and they've lived longer than their their savings account. Yes. You know, and they need to go into nursing care. Um, this is the program that pays for that. This is the program that if you have a severely disabled child or your 16-year-old is in a car full of drunken teenagers and has a severe head injury or is paralyzed, this is the program that will pay to take care of your child. Can I go down kind of a
0: side road here? I, I do want to get to the heart of it. Just while we're talking about this, why do you suppose, I mean, you're laying out here why it's so important and how it helps people that may not be otherwise prepared to take care of long-term health problems but a lot of programs are that important a lot of programs are that critical to the safety net for for some reason Medicaid is one that even the Republicans know they have to approach with kid gloves now why is that uh,
2: I don't really I don't agree I don't I don't think they do approach it with kid gloves okay they, they they're very happy to have people think that it's something that only undeserving poor people get. Mm, And you hear this, you hear this a lot in the the sort of Obamacare discussion. Oh, those people on Medicaid, they couldn't afford insurance before. Why the hell should I pay for them to get it now?
0: Well, now that you bring that up, I have heard that. Okay.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so this is something that Republicans are very good at divide and conquer. You're a good person who, who, bought insurance and saved your money and can take care of things. And, you know, what I say to people like that is, okay, I will sit here and wait while you get on the phone and you call some nursing homes and you find out how much it will cost to put your parents in there for a year. Mm-hmm. And then you get back to me and tell me how far your savings are going to go.
0: Yeah, and that's one of those cases where those of us of a certain age whose parents have had to go through that already, I just think... It, you can no longer be anything but clear-eyed. I mean, those costs are ungodly, and that is for basic level care at a facility that may leave you in doubt that you want your parents there or that you want uh, you know, a, a, someone who needs care beyond what can be provided at home, beyond what can be provided at a hospital, regardless of their age. You're not even sure you want those people in there. Right. So tell um, me about this block grant thing where, where now the Republicans well, are saying, oh, well, replace this with block grants.
2: A block grant is a famous Republican shell game whereby, see, under, under the current law, right? Mm-hmm. If you're eligible, you get it, period. Okay. Republicans hate that because then that leaves, that leaves the budget open to actual need as opposed to their convenience. What they want to do is they want to pay for a part of Medicaid and then let everybody else go hang. Mm -hmm. You know, and and that's that's what a block grant is. And the way I explain it to people is a block grant is it it turns the program that's supposed to cover everybody who needs it into concert tickets. And if you're not standing in line and you don't get a ticket before the tickets run out, you're out of luck. Mm. Whereas the current system is every single person who's in line gets a ticket.
0: You and can see where that's they, anti-American. And
2: it's, sure. And it's, and it's kind of like what they have planned, you know, what they want to do with Medicare, which is they want to tr- uh, turn it into vouchers or, as I like to call it, Groupons for health care. <laughs> you know, and anybody who's used Groupons for any period of time will tell you that um, the places that use the Groupons, you know, that offer the Groupons are often substandard or unreliable in some way.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and if you, you know if you get to the point where you have to use a voucher to go to the doctors well you're obviously going to have problems with that so you know the they're they're the typical republican con jobs they're tricks they're things that sound reasonable block grants sound reasonable oh not you know and don't worry about it covering enough people because We're we're even going to give you a little more than you needed the last time. But the trick of that is that the baby boomers are starting to die. Mm Mm-hmm. You know? The numbers are shifting. Yeah, we have this huge demographic wave coming in of people who will be getting, you know, who are getting elderly and sick and dying. And all of a sudden, we're going to chop that off. Yeah. Just when it's most needed. Can I offer a little light at the
0: end of the uh, tunnel here? As long as we're talking about demographics, one of the encouraging things here is that more and more millennials are starting to identify as socialists, or at least social social democrats, democratic socialists. So I'm wondering, as you're describing this, you know, there are the baby boomers who understand how this works, and they're dying off. They're the ones that will be in need. Ideally, and what we're seeing some sign of is that coming up behind our generation are those who understand the government has a place in keeping its people well and cared for.
2: Well, you would think, but I hear, you know, a lot of young people that I've known have been very upset about the, the mandated Obamacare buy-in. Mm. Um, you know, so so what I'm trying to do is explain this in terms to people that they can, they can already understand, which is that, do you really want your dying parents staying on a couch in your house while they die because there's no, there's no way to send them to a nursing home? Yeah. Do and you, you really want an elderly patient with Alzheimer's wandering around your neighborhood because you can no longer afford to send them to a nursing home?
0: And you actually, you open the article with your own mother's experience with this. And I, I'm not going to go through that story, but it's a real life example of what happens when the safety net is not there. And it's a lot more concrete right. than saying this could theoretically happen.
2: Yeah. And 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 this is what I tell and this is what I say about social security when I when young people tell me, Oh, it's a Ponzi scheme and it's not gonna work and, and you know, I'm not, who who cares anyway? And I say, As long as you have a fold out couch for your mother in the living room, I guess it'll be fine.
0: Hmm. That's that. you know Might cut to the chase, yeah. yeah.
2: Well, you don't want your mother living with you, kids. Well, your mother doesn't want to live with you. Mm-hmm. Your mother would prefer not to live with you, you know like people want the dignity of their elderly years you know they they want to know that they 're safe that they can eat, you know, and that they can pay the bills,
0: yeah, you know you and, bring up something else in the article that I wanted to make sure we touch on, and that is this ongoing narrative that Medicaid and social Security and Medicare are in crisis, that they have to be fixed right now with critical and huge fixes or we will all be in the pit.
2: And they're not. They're absolutely not. And I've been talking about this for a good 15 years now, which is that, you know, the Republicans have, these, have been doing a lot of polling. And the thing that they find out again and again and again is that people are absolutely resistant to the idea of cutting any of these programs unless you can convince them that it's necessary in order to save the program.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: that's where they put. That's where they put all their energy, coming up with these sort of fake studies and these these uh, statements that they make all the time. And Paul Ryan, you know, who keeps getting this this uh, he's really a very stupid man. And the fact that journalists keep referring to him as a policy wonk and and very smart like makes me want to choke people, because he's really not. If you ever sat down and went to the trouble of double-checking the things that he, he says, you would know that, but reporters don't do that anymore. So,
0: yeah, Let alone the people who read what the reporters have to say. I mean, we can't, you know, we're, we are, I know it's, it's become tiresome to hear it now, but it has to be underlined, we're in a post-fact era. So well, here you are, you're it, churning out the facts here, you know, you, you're, you're looking at numbers, you're looking at how the shell game works, but, you know, it's kind of fighting the tide of people who, want to believe what they want to believe, and Paul Ryan can speak directly to those people and be believed.
2: Well, the thing that I've been saying to people for years, and of course people who are Republicans are reluctant to believe it, is that the real problem is Republicans. Every time we have a Democrat in the White House, the Republicans do a lot of screaming about um, deficit reduction. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as Republicans get back in, they blow up the deficit again with these massive permanent tax cuts. And this is, the re- this is the real issue. The, the big Republican donors, the people like the Kochs and people like the Mercers, they don't believe in taxes. They really don't think they should have to pay anything, really. Mm-hmm. And the, re- the Republicans that they've hired to represent them in Congress, uh, you know, agree with them because that's the side of the bread that their butter is on. So, you know, so everything is geared towards. Taking money, shifting it from programs where it's needed, and turning it into tax cuts, and that's what we're looking at here. And it's really important that people understand that. That you, you have to call your Congress members. You have to call your senators. Online petitions don't work. Filling out those forms on your congressman's website—they don't work. Really. You either have yes, really. So you either have to call the office. If you have trouble getting through, call one of the satellite offices. Don't call the Washington office. Mm-hmm. Call the office or write them a letter. This has a lot more impact than anything you can do. And I and I tell people I have my congressman's and both senators' phone numbers in my cell phone, and I use them regularly.
0: That's. You know, one of this, the secrets to politics is that it sounds so tepid and just kind of a nothing burger. Call your Congress and make your point. Call your congressperson and make your point. But it is bottom line. I mean, they are there to represent. And the loud voices are the ones that are heard. We almost want to think we can do something more sweeping and more dramatic, but it always comes down to lobbying your congressmember.
2: And, and here's how it works. If the Democrats are going to stand up to the Republicans, they have to know you're behind them. Mm-hmm. They have to know you're going to back them. So don't tell me, well, I don't have to call my congressman. He's a Democrat. to senator that, that way anyway. No, they need to know that you're drawing the line and that you are backing them. Because you don't want them to back down later and, and compromise. And, and if it's a Republican, even better. Call them and just say, no, I'm absolutely appalled at this. And I know you're not up for re-election for another six years, but every other Republican that I know is, and I will warn all of my friends not to vote for any Republicans if you have this. You need to get over the fear of picking up the phone. These people work for you. Don't be so shy.
0: Yeah, the phone is the old old fashioned instrument, but it still works. Susie, I want to thank you for taking the time to explain this, and I'll point people again to your article. It's at the Huffington Post The plan to cut Medicaid once again. Republicans are trying to st- destroy your family's safety net. Susie, thanks a lot. I'm glad you have some time for this today. Sure. And you can follow Susie, who is the editor of Broadbase News, at her own website at susymadrek.com. And with that, yours truly, Angie Cuero runs off into the sunset to see what problems there are with my recording equipment. And with even more luck, I'll actually fix them. You will find out tomorrow when you tune in for the next episode of the Bradcast. Brad and Desi will be back from vacation next Tuesday. Meanwhile, as Brad so wisely advises, good luck, world.